Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, this is Lily Gorn with the New Books Network, the New Books and Political Science podcast. Today I'm joined by Bert Rockman and Andy Andrew Rudolevich um, to talk to us about their new book, The Obama Legacy. This book was published in 2019 by the University Press of Kansas, and it is an edited volume that collects some really interesting scholarship in helping us think about not only the Obama presidency, but also the long-range understanding of Obama, his administration, the policies, the politics, the partisanship, et cetera, thereof. But I'm going to let Bert and Andrew talk to us a little bit about them. that. First, I'd like to invite um, Bert Rockman and Andrew Rudolevich to tell us each a little bit about themselves and how they came to this particular project. Hello, Bert and Andy. Yes. Uh, this is Bert. Um, <clears throat> I came to this project, actually, uh, I believe it was in the early 1990s. Um, uh, we were approached by uh, Colin Campbell, uh, who was then at uh, Georgetown University, and I were approached by Ed Ortinian, who was um, the publisher and uh, proprietor of Chatham House Publications, to do a book, a series of books on uh, the legacies of, uh, of presidents. And uh, George Bush, uh, or George Bush 41, as we now know him, uh, was uh, in his first, and uh, as matters turned out, only term. Uh, and so the book uh, series really began with the Bush 41 presidency, and then it went on uh, through uh, the three other publishers. The uh, University Press of Kansas is the most recent one, and and we were happy uh, to have University Press of Kansas um, publish the book because it has a wonderful uh, set of uh, books on the on the presidency uh, and and a very substantial reputation in that. So so this is uh, and Andy came on, I believe, um, sometime. Uh, let's see, it must have been about. Um, uh, 2000, I think, I think with the, uh, uh, George W. Bush presidency. Um, and, and so we had three editors for a time and then Colin retired. And so Andy and I are the current editors and we will have a third, uh, Julia Azari coming on, uh, for the next edition. Yeah. My, uh, involvement in the series, this is Andy Rudlevich, uh, began with, I believe, the uh, George W. Bush legacy. So the series in the whole has looked at the uh, appraisals of a first term and prospects for a second, and then at the end of a term has looked at the legacy of that president. And so this is the second Obama volume, uh, but as Bert mentioned, the first with University Press of Kansas. One of the reasons for shifting publishers uh, was really the publication deadline. Uh, 
Kansas was willing to let us wait a little bit so that we would be able to better appraise the legacy of the president. Uh, earlier volumes, because of the heavy pressure on classroom adoption, had been uh, coming out before the president had actually left office. And this ran the real risk of missing late-term events that might be important to assessing that legacy. So we're delighted with uh, Kansas being willing to let us actually uh, do that assessment in a more systematic, scholarly way. And and this book is is really an, a wonderful overview of um, the Obama the the Obama election. Um, the the sort you have a lot of great data with regard to um, the electoral outcomes in twenty oh eight and and twenty twelve. You also have you know, really digging into policy, um, deliberations and processes and the partisanship that marked also those eight years. Um, so I'd love to have you talk a little bit about, um, the approaches that you sort of pulled together in this edited volume, the, the various authors and, and the sort of highlights, um, of some of the, the chapters that came in as they were coming in, what surprises you might've found in reading work by some of your colleagues um, in analyzing the Obama legacy. Andy, do you want to begin with that? Um, sure. I mean, <clears throat> for all these volumes, of course, you're looking to recruit uh, you know, a mix of authors who are going to be able to provide a you know, relatively objective view of the pros and cons, uh, the uh, hits and misses of a given administration. And so we were looking for people who you know, were, you know, methodologically sound, um, but also who represented a variety of views within the presidency subfield. And we were delighted that uh, we were able to get, I think, uh, a pretty widely diverse group of scholars, a lot of young scholars involved uh, who, you know, were not necessarily the, the same old faces uh, and voices that uh, we've tended to hear from. And so that, I think, is a uh, was a plus. It did allow for a fresh vantage. We've got, uh, you know, folks who are sort of becoming uh, more prominent in the field. I would say uh, people like Molly Reynolds, Sharice Thrower, of course, Julia Azari, um, some folks who are, are well-established. Um, in terms of surprises, you know, this is a, a field we've, you know, lived through and looked at for a long time, but I would say the, uh, not a surprise exactly, but the fact that so much can be uh, explained by polarization and, and uh, partisanship in terms of both uh, the president's approach to policy over time and the learning that occurred as he realized that there was going to be effectively no bipartisan support for anything he did, uh, even for a president taking office in the midst of, uh, you know, instead of peace and prosperity, war and depression, or at least great recession. Uh, that there was really going to be no party crossover, that the uh, uh, the lesson uh, Republicans took from the 2008 election was that they should oppose everything that the president did. Uh, you could argue Democrats have now learned that lesson pretty well themselves uh, moving forward. And so to see that not just in you know the Obama and Congress chapter uh, or the Obama and the political parties chapter, but really throughout the book, uh, everything from race to the judiciary, uh, I think was striking at the very least. Yeah, I, th I think that's right. And I think that one of the things that we uh, uh, were able to pick up from this is, uh, is how important context is. Uh, and I think uh, particularly in Julia Azari's 
chapter, uh, which uh, very explicitly points out what I think are underlying tones in other chapters, that we're living in a partisan uh, era, deeply partisan era, without, however, uh, a great deal of attention to party organization. And probably uh, what has been said about Obama in that regard, that is uh, existing in a partisan era, is probably uh, somewhat appropriated to the current uh, incumbent as well. Um, partisan era, um, he hasn't paid a whole lot of attention to uh, to the building up the political party, so to speak, but he has uh, certainly acquired a heavy degree of followership uh, in, uh, in the party. Uh, I think the other thing, however, is that legacies are incredibly tenuous. Um, you know, uh, the current incumbent is uh, obviously, uh, Trump has obviously um, uh, been been uh, adamant about erasing Obama's legacy, such as it was. Uh, and undoubtedly, whoever succeeds him will be uh, adamant on erasing his legacy. In fact, that if there's anything that unites the Democratic candidates, it is fundamentally that, uh, that they... Uh, want to get rid of uh, whatever it is that Trump has been doing and his conduct in the presidency. So legacies are tenuous uh, unless something, some extraordinary uh, social or international events have stamped it. And and that's one of the one of the components of the book. I I mean, I, what I found in reading through it is, yes, the the partisanship and the polarization is threaded through each chapter, um, and it, it's not something that is just in the chapters, as you note about um, Obama's relationship with the Republicans in Congress. It's in each chapter. But I also found to be interesting, as you also noted, is the the issue around party leadership and party building um, that also seem to be structured into so much of the discussion throughout the book um, in terms of questions of legacy um, and, and that, you know, Obama kept losing positions, kept losing people in the House, kept losing people in the Senate, kept losing governor's offices, kept losing state legislatures, or the Democratic Party kept losing all of these during the Obama period. And we're seeing potentially, again, that kind of dynamic during the Trump administration. And, and so I'm, I would ask you both a little bit about sort of these waves of um, sort of back and forth, you know, the sort of divided government constantly, but also the undermining or, or sort of pulling apart of the parties themselves. Um. Yeah, there's. I think that that uh, the the you know the separation of powers uh, and the division of government uh, has, has certainly uh, produced intense partisanship with uh, zero result uh, for the most part, um, and we're likely to be in a period uh, that uh, one doesn't know how how far uh, it will extend, but it certainly. Uh, seems to have quite a bit of momentum now that that uh, presidents are going to be, if they try to do, you know, uh, things, whatever they try to do, are going to create enormous amount of opposition. And the opposition is much more easily put together and activated now than it would have been, um, let's say, even as 
short a time as 20 years ago. Um, it's a lot easier uh, to uh, uh, to have uh, the, the cost, I guess, put it this way, the cost of collective action uh, in the internet era are relatively small compared to what they used to be. So it's pretty easy to activate activists um, around the country. And uh, that, I think, means that over time, it's going to be very, very hard to get governing coalitions. Uh, Trump has been talking about all that he's done, but the fact of the matter is he's done very little. Um, and and it looks to me like that will continue to be the case over the immediately foreseeable future. Yeah, I think you wind up with a couple of interesting results. Uh, for one thing, it's obviously very hard to do anything in Congress, uh, given the you know, the filibuster rule in the Senate, if nothing else, uh, the sort of decline, again, of any sort of uh, ability to reach across the aisle. Uh, and, you know, that's obviously exacerbated right now with impeachment debates. But going back to the Obama administration, again, the uh, sort of strategic decision uh, that opposition was the way to generate support uh, for Republicans in Congress over time. And that proved to be successful, right? You wound up with a uh, you know a backlash electorally against the Democrats that of course uh, shifts the House back to the Republican side after 2010 and the Senate after 2014 and a, a huge wave of state legislatures as well uh, governorships going on at this time uh, so one result of that in turn is that of course Obama turns to a more executive centered and administrative strategy uh, trying to change regulations issuing executive orders and memoranda. Uh, you know, and this in turn drives a lot of things to the courts. Uh, it also, as Bert mentioned earlier, tees them up for a certain level of fragility uh, in the Trump administration. Uh, any successor is going to have a good deal of discretion to uh, wipe away executive action uh, through subsequent executive action. So I think this sort of uh, reliance on executive action instead of legislation has made it more difficult for presidents generally to have a legacy. Um, it also perhaps uh, leads to, you know, a broader difficulty uh, for presidents in trying to change the underlying institutions, right? There's a lot of rhetoric flying around. Um, you know, uh, Al Tillery's chapter is pretty interesting. I think he talks about uh, Obama's relationship with African-Americans, and there's a fair bit of literature out there that's disappointed in Obama. He didn't do enough. Uh, Al points out that Obama was a very... Uh, you know, uh, active in terms of his rhetoric, in terms of his appointments, in terms of his attempts to uh, build up, uh, you know, equal protection of the laws, but that the underlying institutions were not particularly receptive to that. And so, you know, generally the, the outcomes were much less than the rhetoric, though the rhetoric was sometimes beautiful. So I think, again, there, um, you know, the inability to build bipartisan coalitions uh, makes it very difficult for underlying institutional change. And and that was one of the questions I, I wanted to ask you about was not only the Tillery chapter, but but the next chapter in the book, Obama's Latino legacy from unknown to never forgotten um, in terms of, again, some of the questions of legacy and integration of various components 
various demographic groups within the Democratic Party, um, but also the policy dimensions. Um, and as you know, with regard to Tillery's chapter, um, there was a, a lot of obvious support from the African-American community for the nation's first black president. Um, but then there was also a lot of um, not necessarily disappointment or some disappointment, but also sort of, you know, not all that much came in terms of policy per se. Um, and what about the legacy with regard to other demographic groups that Obama also sort of said, I'm going to lift up? Um, and, and so how does that play out with regard to his legacy? Well, you know, uh, it's a problem actually for Democratic presidents, at least in the current era. Um, Republican presidents uh, generally have one, uh, in recent times, of one constituency. uh, And uh, that's basically uh, white people, particularly older white people, particularly older uh, white males. and, um, uh, And that's to the extent that concentrated is the right term here. Uh, they're largely concentrated in uh, exurban and uh, rural areas. So uh, the Trump presidency is a case in which um, that focus has been uh, extraordinarily persistent and, uh, and, and much more um, evident than it has been in prior Republican administrations. But it's been there. Uh, at least in relatively recent decades, certainly since the Reagan administration for certain. The Democrats have a bigger problem because they're composed of a whole variety of uh, of demographics um, and all of which make uh, some demands, all of which, uh, none of which feel that they uh, have all their desires fulfilled. Uh, and that, that becomes a bigger problem for any Democratic president. Now, particularly when a Democratic president is a minority uh, oneself, uh, that uh, the expectations uh, become much larger. Um, And they would, would, uh, if, let's say, Kamala Harris or Cory Booker or Julia uh, Castro, uh, um, any of the uh, minority uh, Democratic candidates, uh, were to become president, uh, the group that they represent, simply demographically, uh, would probably never be satisfied with uh, what they do because, of course, they have to be president of the United States, not just the single demographic. And and as Andy was saying earlier, it's uh, it's harder to get things through Congress in the form of legislation. So I think that this tension is is really going to be there for the foreseeable future. Yeah, I just worth pointing to the uh, the Gutierrez Ocampo Barreto chapter uh, on Latino politics in Obama because of course his original you know uh, campaign in 2008 uh, is up against the backdrop of uh, you know traditional American urban politics where Latinos and African Americans are not always allied certainly at the city level. Uh, and so there was a Good deal of question, in fact, whether he would be able to attract Latino support. Uh, in his first term, he's uh, you know known as the deporter in chief, right? There's very aggressive actions by the uh, administration to try to build up the president's uh, credentials uh, on border security, ironically, in order to 
give him some leeway, he hopes, uh, to build a wider coalition on uh, broader immigration reform. That, of course, never happens. It does make it through the Senate, but does not get enacted. And so he begins to turn uh, here is in other areas to executive action. And it's here that he is able then to broaden that base with uh, with DACA, of course, uh, leading up to the 2012 election. And then in 2014, the, the much wider DAPA program. And uh, of course, we're still arguing about uh, the former uh, as President Trump has tried to roll that back. Um, DAPA winds up in court. Uh, but clearly, um, you know, the signals sent to the Latino community are uh, are unmistakable and positive. And of course, he does adopt other positions as well in terms of outreach to Cuba and the like that begin to uh, to cement that. It's all against the backdrop, of course, of the 2012 campaign uh, where Governor Romney at the time is attacking, you know, immigration. He's uh, talking about self-deportation and very tough policies. Intriguingly, of course, the Republican Party uh, winds up uh, deciding as a body, you remember the autopsy after the 2012 election, where they decided, yeah, we need to actually be much more inclusive. We need to go back to the sort of George W. Bush approach of uh, compassionate conservatism with regards to immigration. Um, that, of course, uh, is a policy very explicitly rejected by the Trump campaign and, and successfully so. Uh, perhaps one result uh, here will be the, uh, you know, I don't think it was a an obvious outcome, you know, 10 or 15 years ago, the Latinos would be solidly democratic, but that seems to be the likely outcome now that in fact, the uh, democratic base grows in that direction as well, even though again, that perhaps uh, did not have to be the inevitable outcome, but the way that the parties have shifted, that and, becomes And more I wanted likely. to follow up on that and ask you, Andy, specifically about the chapter that you wrote about Obama as imperial or imperiled, and the way that it also follows on um, Alyssa uh, Julian's and John Graham's chapter on the second term domestic agenda, um, and and what it is that you are trying to get at in the way that you're thinking about um, the sort of the way that Obama conducted himself um, as president with regard to this this sort of question of imperialism. Yeah, it's uh, been a fascinating development to see, you know, uh, well, so President Obama uh, came into office attacking the excesses, as he saw them, of the George W. Bush administration with regards to executive action, specifically in the war powers. Uh, I think one thing that the Obama administration cements and, you know, that the Trump administration has only added to is the notion that if you can't pass new laws, the key tactic is to reinterpret old laws. And that was very much in the forefront of a lot of Obama's policies. You know, new laws, again, could not be passed after 2010. Lots were passed before 2010, it should be remembered, uh, when there were large Democratic majorities, you know, big statutory change did occur in the beginning of the Obama administration. But after that, it's a question of issuing the regulations and, uh, as I say, interpreting older laws like the Clean Air Act, um, the Immigration and Nationality Act, and uh, all the way over to the War Powers Resolution in ways that benefited the president's preferences. So Obama rejected the idea that George W. Bush had put forth that there was a sense of presidential prerogative that you could override statute 
especially in wartime, to achieve uh, the outcomes the president thought were necessary. Obama, you know, made it very clear he wanted all of his actions to be based in statute or in the Constitution. Uh, but it turns out that if you hire good lawyers, pretty much anything you want to do can be justified by statute and the Constitution. And so you don't necessarily see a, a retrenchment of the administrative presidency in Obama. Indeed, you see an expansion, I think. Um, so it turned, you know, I think one interesting aspect of that, as I alluded to earlier, is the fact that this is a fragile legacy, right? Regulations take longer to change, but they can be changed. Uh, executive orders can be changed in the uh, with a signature. And so, you know, <clears throat> I think uh, in the end, the legacy that Obama was able to establish, and I'm not sure he had a, a good different option in mind or available to him, you know, is going to be subject sort of to the, the whims of his successors. Uh, I wouldn't mind coming back at some point to the, the war power side of this, because I think that's a, uh, a question where we can uh, look really at Congress's abrogation of its own power in a pretty significant way. But uh, we can swing back to that when you okay. think it's a good idea. Um, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, I think Andy put his finger on a very, very important trend here, which is <clears throat> why the judiciary has really become fundamentally the most important now of the uh, three branches of government, uh, because they get to decide, <laughs> uh, <clears throat> you know, what uh, uh, basically the validity of executive discretion and on um, any given instance. And and so we understand now uh, why the judiciary has become so heavily politicized, not necessarily that the judges are, but the perception uh, of the importance of the the nomination process and getting judges through that, you know, basically are going to divide along uh, party lines uh, is now the expectation. And, and that's precisely because of the growth of the executive presidency. And I, and I wanted to ask you a little bit um, about that in context also of your, your chapter, Bert, which is, again, you know, the leadership style and legacy of Obama, comparisons and complexities, which also acts as a kind of conclusive chapter um, for the book as a whole. Um, and what you see in terms of those comparisons, I know we've talked a little bit about the comparison between Obama and Trump, obviously, going forward. But um, but a little bit of also the comparisons going backwards, and you've been involved in in these kinds of publications that are sort of retrospective and prospective for quite some time. And obviously, you're both scholars of the presidency, so I'm I'm curious about the sort of discussion of his particular leadership style and how that also impacted his legacy. Uh- yeah, I think that, you know, the, one of the points that I was trying to make in that chapter, though, is that um, <clears throat> the personal element of a presidency is probably the uh, aspect that's likely to be the most ephemeral, um, because every president is different. Uh, now, that <clears throat> that might not be the case with Trump, <laughs> um, but, uh, but I think uh, in, in Obama's case, uh, you tend to get, as you do with most, you tend to get a reaction from one president's style to another president's style. Um, and <clears throat> I think Obama, as I uh, kind of indicated, without trying to fall into some kind of uh, uh, worship of the, you know, 
of the person uh, was somebody of very even temperament. You know, there was the no drama Obama was the line, I think, um, person of considerable intellect. Uh, and uh, insofar as there were really no issues involved with his character uh, or moral issues, um, seemed to be, you know, the kind of president one might hope uh, uh, that we have more of, uh, putting aside whatever positions, you know, uh, that is political positions uh, uh, that that person is holding. Um, so uh, the tendency, however, is to get somebody almost exactly in reverse uh, of the person who preceded, you know, uh, that individual. So, um, you know, even if they're the same party, Reagan came in, you know, presumably uh, to, in some ways, like Trump, but without Trump's personality, uh, basically to uh, and, uh, to diminish government, to diminish its importance, its size, and, uh, and its uh, executive functioning, uh, and then was replaced by uh, Bush 41, who was very experienced in government, uh, respected government, um, didn't necessarily, you know, that's aside from how large it should be, how what its power should be, and so forth. But one of the first things he did was to meet with the senior civil servants and uh, basically tell them uh, how much, you know, he uh, regarded and respected their role. So, so these personal differences do you know, strongly arise, I think, uh, and they usually arise as a consequence of, well, wait, years in office or whatever, that's, you know, that's a long time, maybe we need something different, you know, and so I don't know how much of a legacy uh, Obama's own, you know, personal characteristics uh, are, so much as they may have been a reaction to those of George W. Bush and Trump in turn. To, uh, to Obama. And, and that's what you've also, you know, you've sort of highlighting this as, as what you've been able to sort of assess in previous volumes as well. Um, when you look at leadership style and, and as you say, it seems to be quite, it can be quite ephemeral, um, as, as history moves on. Yes. I think, I think, you know, to go back to context, uh, a bit, um, a lot depends upon what happens in both international and national uh, contexts. And um, why do we remember Lincoln? We remember Lincoln because of the tearing up of the of the U.S. political system, the the Civil War. Um, we remember Franklin Roosevelt because of the international challenges and the domestic challenges, um, and uh, you know, so we have these perceptions of greatness uh, as a consequence of the nature of the challenges uh, facing the presidents. Uh, and I think it was Bill Clinton who kept, you know, worrying about uh, uh, not being considered to be a great president in history because he was living during normal times, you know, and they were good times. Um, you know, so... <laughs> So it, it is the context, I think, that matters a great deal. So is this why uh, Bill decided to make his own trouble? Andy, Bill Bert, uh, it's a... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. 
Yeah, we we seem to be living a little bit through some of the own trouble sometimes right now. Um, um, Andy, I wanted to loop back to you because you did say you wanted to talk a little bit more about this question of presidents and President Obama's legacy around questions of war powers. And the the chapter after yours, which is also about foreign entanglements um, and, and some of the discussion with regard to the um, the partisanship in Congress and foreign entanglements. I, I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about that. Um, sure. So there's a couple of pieces here. Uh, you know, Bert is talking about the importance, uh, at least within a presidency, of uh, the president's character and, uh, and personality. Uh, you know, the scholarship, of course, on the presidency has argued for a long time about the relative impact of, uh, of character versus institutional uh, pressures, constraints, incentives. And I think on the war power side, certainly you have uh, a lot of the latter, right? The president certainly, you know, he gave a speech uh, in, I think, May 2009, talking about how uh, we'd gone too far in our, uh, in the war on terror in regards to things like surveillance, uh, in regards to uh, the sort of uh, unilateral expansion of presidential authority uh, in addressing terrorism and uh, yet you know the Obama record effectively is one of continuation at least of the second part of the Bush administration maybe not the, the first part the immediate post 9/11 part in terms of well one of the things I was talking about before um, Obama didn't want to claim uh, prerogative power but if you look at his interpretation of both the uh, authorization for the use of military force that was passed in 2001, and the War Powers Resolution, you see some very creative and uh, uh, authority-expanding interpretations of those statutes. In the first case, right, the AUMF is extended um, well beyond Al-Qaeda uh, into the war on ISIS, right? ISIS, of course, a group that didn't exist in 2001, and that resolution speaks specifically to uh, those who attacked the United States in that uh atrocity, right? It's not a, uh, so basically the extension of the AUMF to one, two, three, I don't know, six degrees of separation perhaps uh, from the original perpetrators is one um, important legal interpretation the Obama administration made and that the Trump administration has picked up on. Uh, On the war power side, you'll remember in 2011 in Libya, uh, there's a lot of question about whether the U.S. could move forward with the NATO military operation there uh, after the time in the War Powers Resolution had expired, the administration got around that problem by redefining the Libya operation as not a war. It's not hostilities, uh, partly and uh, somewhat comically, I have to say, uh, because the Libyans were not shooting back at us. Therefore, it could have been hostile. Uh, you know, to people on the ground, they might have a different uh, opinion of that definition. But Obama trying to sort of define the war powers resolution as only uh, applicable to wars the size of Vietnam, effectively, uh, is another uh, legacy and one, again, that the Trump administration has picked up on uh, as it uh, deals with, say, its airstrikes on Syria. So uh, there are some, you know, continuities in policy and in the kinds of claims made about presidential authority that I think will be longer lasting. Uh, again, helped along by Congress's, you know, utter failure really to deal seriously with its own authority in the Constitution regarding war making. Uh, broader 
points about foreign policy, yeah, Dave Houghton's chapter, uh, which is, uh, you know, derived from uh, the don't do stupid stuff, though the word wasn't stuff, uh, that became the motto for Obama's foreign policy, really tracks through, you know, some of the uh, skepticism that the administration had about broader interventions, certainly new interventions. Uh, He was pretty realistic and skeptical about interventions that might lead to limitless commitments. Um, and for some, you know, that was a failure, right? For some, this sort of push towards multilateralism was a desertion of American leadership. Uh, but basically the idea of just not doing things that could turn out badly um, is looking relatively uh, refreshing in the aftermath of that. And uh, But again, you have uh, longer term arguments about the general role of the United States in the world, how uh, expansive our policy should be. Obama, on the whole, was very open to globalization and multilateralism. uh, And that, of course, we're seeing, again, a reaction to in the current administration. And Bert, would you like to add anything to those last bits? Uh, I think Andy more or less said it all uh, of the, um, you know, presidents are going to try to find whatever room they have to maneuver um, and uh, to be able to hold those decisions within the executive. Um, And I think that's a secular trend that has been going on now for quite some time. Uh, It's also the case that, uh, as Andy pointed out, that uh, Congress has been utterly remiss, uh, essentially, in uh, being able to hold uh, to legislate and and to oversee um, the executive. And in part, now what we are currently seeing is essentially that the executive is uh, staving off uh, Congress's uh, right to oversee, and largely because the committees are no longer have any kind of uh, connection across the parties they're, they've all become a function of the partisanship that is pervading the system as a whole. So, the, you know, we saw that in the impeachment vote, uh, the, not the, the uh, impeachment, but the resolution to uh, open an impeachment inquiry, uh, almost exactly along party lines. Uh, and the more that there is that, the less that Congress is going to be able to function. And, and that, again, is, you know, as you note throughout the book, is something that is in each chapter um, as part of the Obama presidency and also, and now the legacy of that, that time as well, um, in part because of the capacity to, um, as you say, uh, create enormous amounts of opposition to themselves <laughs> with great ease. Um, so I wanted to ask you both about what you're working on now, um, besides the potential next book in this series, um, which you're individually working on, uh, looking forward. Uh, well, I guess I could start off with that since I'm not supposed <laughs> to be working at this point, but, uh, uh, I've been doing some work on, uh, populism, uh, and, um, from a kind of international uh, standpoint, but heavily focused also in the U.S. Um, uh, the impacts of it, uh, the threat to um, constitutional and uh, liberal democratic um, 
uh, elements and and the uh, institutional bases of of, of governance, uh, meaning particularly uh, the bureaucracy or what I guess these days is being called the deep state, um, which kind of connects us both to the past and to uh, the brain of government, essentially, um, and and to uh, the court. Uh, so uh, that's one thing. The other thing is uh, kind of completely different, <laughs> which is uh, I'm working on uh, healthcare, uh, a book on healthcare policy, and and uh, I've uh, done several papers on this now about um, particularly uh, single payer and uh, what would be a kind of most efficient. Uh, but nonetheless, very costly uh, reworking of the of the U.S. Oh, healthcare okay. system. Great, Andy. Yeah, well, as you say, the next book could be the Trump legacy, or it could be Trump appraisals and prospects. Yeah. I guess that kind of depends on uh, House and Senate at this point, as well as on the electorate. Uh, the most of my work at the moment is about aspects of the administrative presidency. Uh, have a uh, paper I'm working on about Trump and the deep state the subtitle of which is A Love Story. Uh, partly, uh, because, in fact, as we've noted, it's so hard to get things through Congress that I think most of the substantive uh, achievements of the Trump administration will actually be through the administration that he uh, claims to deplore so very much. Uh, but the larger projects, I'm writing, uh, finishing up, I say, knocking on wood, uh, a manuscript uh, that with luck will be out with Princeton towards the end of next year, uh, on executive orders, uh, specifically on the formulation process that lies behind executive orders and the ways in which presidents manage the bureaucracy in order to achieve those orders, but also how the bureaucracy seeks to manage the president uh, on what George Krauss long ago called a two-way street. Uh, a bigger project that's ongoing is a, a very large institutional history of the Office of Management and Budget, which has popped up again in the news as uh, the issue of Ukrainian military aid has arisen, but um, keeps getting called obscure but powerful agency. Well, that's been what it's called since 2021. So uh, <laughs> I'm working with Matt Dickinson up at Middlebury College on that uh, manuscript. And again, it's a long-term effort. If any of your readers are former OMB staffers, I would love to hear from you. Okay. <laughs> we put the call out here on the New Books Network. Um, so when each of you finish the next book, I hope that you'll come on separately to talk to me about your particular projects. And also, of course, when the Trump legacy book comes out, whenever that is, I hope you'll both come on also with Dr. Azari to talk about that book. Um, so I wanted to thank you both for being with me today to talk about the Obama legacy um, this new book came out with the University Press of Kansas in 2019 and is edited by Bert Rockman and Andrew Rudolevich. And I assume one can buy this at the University Press of Kansas website, as well as other places people buy books. Indeed. Uh, support your local bookstore. Yes. Support your local bookstore. <laughs> Thank you both for being with me today. Great pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.